0: Well, welcome to our Bible study tonight. Thanks for joining us. We are on the uh, topic of the life of Christ. And boy, what a great study the life of Christ is. I have uh, done very generic studies of the life of Christ, overviews. I have been under Bible studies, Sunday schools of the life of Christ. But there is something really um, beneficial, a real blessing of just taking it slow and covering every main event and going over the messages that Christ gave during his time on earth. Now, you do recognize that what is recorded for us in the four Gospels does not cover completely, or even in my opinion, closely to what Christ actually said and did, right? You understand that. You do realize that the Bible is a concise um, source of information. It is not Um, covering every statement every prophet made or every event that every major hero of the faith accomplished, including Jesus Christ. Now, why not? Why wouldn't God give us a source of truth that states everything that Christ said or that everything that Christ did? You know, you got to ask God that question when you get to heaven, because I certainly would have loved to read that. I'm sure I obviously understand God has his reasons. What they are, he does not tell us why he would not give us more information. Maybe it has something to do with faith. And maybe God says, I gave you enough information to act in faith on what I did not give you. That's all I got. That's all I. It's the only reason I have for why God would not give us more. Uh, God does tell us the just shall live by faith. God makes it pretty clear that he wants us as Christians to make faith a major part of our life, not just in getting saved. Well, I got saved. I trusted Christ. I have faith. That's all I need. No. There is faith by which you are saved, saving faith, faith in Christ to save you. And then there is faith after you're saved in your continual service of Christ. If you are struggling in your faith of service, struggling in your faith daily of, God, are you there? God, are you going to provide for me? God, where should I go next? The struggle of that serving faith in no way affects the faith by which you were saved. The faith to trust Christ initially, once you have that faith, you are saved, you are going to heaven. And unfortunately, being saved does not mean we are exempt from sin. God saves us from our sin, and we are righteous in His eyes, but sin still dwells within us, and that sin, that sin conflicts with the faith that we want to have as we walk with Christ daily. And so I think that that's a very big deal to God, and that might be the reason why we don't have more information uh, than what we do have available. But i got to tell you, what we have is plenty. <laughs> So let's go ahead and continue on. We were talking about, this where we left off, was the cost of discipleship. As Christ was talking with various individuals who came to him and said, hey, I want to serve you. And one of them, Christ actually went to and said, "Do you, are you willing to follow me? Others said they want to follow Christ. And with each one, Christ kind of gives a... Uh, a truth that they must understand. The first one comes to him in verse fifty-seven. This is Luke chapter nine, verse fifty-seven, and says, "Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go." Christ says in verse fifty-eight, "Well, if you're going to follow me, you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. I don't have a home. Foxes have holes and animals have their dens. I personally have no home at this point." Uh, he says, "Birds have their nests." So if you're if you're wanting to follow me, step outside your comfort zone. We're not told what the man decided. If you followed Christ or not, you can decide for yourself what that man might have said. What would you have said? It's one thing to be a little uncomfortable, but to be taken completely outside your comfort zone, where once you had a home, now you're sleeping outside, where once you had the comforts of home, and now all those comforts are gone. Would you still follow Christ? And remember, this is a call to discipleship, not salvation. Christ is not saying you got to leave the comforts of your home to be saved. He's saying if you want to do something... For me, in this life, you've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. He then goes on to the next man, and this one, he says in verse 59, follow me, Christ goes to the man... And actually asks him, will you follow me? You know, we think of this with Christ and the the apostles, right? Where Christ goes to Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me. And Matthew gives up all and follows Christ. He does that with a few others, and they respond and follow Christ, including the fishermen, right? They're in the boats. Christ says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter says, I'm not worthy, but yeah, I'm going to follow you. And they give up all, and they follow Christ. Here's a situation where Christ says, follow me. And again, we don't have the response of this person he says, uh, the person that, that Christ goes to says, let me go and bury my father. Let me bury my dad. I told you last time we were together, that does not mean that his dad was dead, and he said, let me have the funeral service. It meant my dad is older. Let me stay with my dad until he's dead, and then I will follow you. Christ's response is, let the dead bury their dead, meaning you can't wait for other people to pass from this life before you commit to me because it will, from one situation leading to the next situation leading to the next, and you'll never follow me. So what is the the step of faith here? God is basically saying you cannot allow your family to keep you from following me. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, where I would abandon my children, you know, and say, hey, kids, see you, I'm going to leave you in an alley somewhere. I'm going to follow God. Obviously, that is not the case. That's not what God is saying here. But what he is saying is we do have extended family, you know, parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents, and I've experienced in my life that a lot of families want to stick close together. That's, that's great. I think that my family liked the idea of sticking close together. We are all over the place. None of us are near anyone. I got one brother in Idaho. Another one was Wisconsin. I got a sister in Pennsylvania. Got a brother in Texas. I'm here in Connecticut. And my other brother, I think, is somewhere West Coast, California. My parents in Colorado. Like, none of us are anywhere even in the same state. So, you know, the idea, of, oh, family being close together, should it be nice? We did not accomplish that. I think a lot of families go to um, major efforts to make that happen, where the grandparents and the grandchildren and the nieces and everyone's, like, nearby. That's a beautiful thing, but I'll tell you, when that beautiful thing hinders you from following Christ, it's a problem, especially when you have a calling on you. By the way, I love this. You know, I, have, I am aware there are some spiritual leaders who say, that every person should volunteer to be a disciple of Christ, full-time ministry. Like, it is the job of every adult Christian to highly encourage every Christian teenager to commit to full-time service. And basically, unless God slams the door on their face and says, no, they should just assume they're going to be full-time ministry. And then there are those who say, well, no one should be a disciple unless they have a calling on their life, right? And it's, you know, where is the calling on your life? Where is God's calling? I see both here. In this passage alone, I see both happening. Some go to Christ and say, I want to follow you. And Christ says, sure, you're welcome to follow me. You can go into full-time ministry with me, but here is the expectation if you do. And then others weren't really considering it, but Christ went to them and says, I want you to follow me. Now, I was the one where Christ came to me. Uh, I eventually submitted to that and said, I do want to follow you. But he had already laid on my heart and been driving me closer to him towards that desire before I, I stated in my head and in my heart and out loud, I do want to be full-time ministry. But I think that God uses both. I think there are times where someone has a really strong desire, where I just want to serve Christ, and, and I'm not going to say God's going to turn them away. You know, God's going to take servants, but He is going to tell them, if you do, here's what the cost will be. And then there are some, they're not thinking full-time ministry. They're not thinking evangelism, missions, pastorate, teaching. Uh, But God goes to them and says, hey, I want to use you. Will you follow me? And then they have to determine yes or no. So Christ says to this one, basically, I need to be more important than your own family. And then we find the third one that we discussed last time we were together, and another one comes to Christ and says, I want to follow you, but let me go back and bid all of my family, my friends farewell. Let me say goodbye to them. Now, I told you last time we were together in this culture, a festival, a farewell gathering would not have been an hour. It would have been days, if not weeks. So this guy is basically saying, Christ, I know you're on a journey. You're just passing through. Can you stop here for a week, two weeks? Give me a chance to say goodbye to all my friends, for my family to have a farewell gathering. And then, you know, let's say three weeks from now, I'll be ready to go and I'll follow you then. That's what's really going on here. And Christ looks at him and says, hey, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. You're not going to be successful if you keep looking back. Was the issue that this guy wanted to say goodbye? No. The issue was a heart condition that Christ knew because Christ knows the heart's. And Christ goes right to the heart of what this guy was dealing with. He wanted to serve Christ, but he also wanted all the people in his life that he had come to know and love. So the second person was talking about family. This person, I feel like, was talking a broader uh, group of people, and that's pretty much everyone in his life. And Christ is saying, it's either you're focused on me or you're focused on all the people in your life. Because if you're focused on all the people in your life, you can't serve me as effectively as I need or want you to serve me there is a cost to discipleship. There is no cost to you for salvation. Completely free. Christ paid that. But once you're saved, you now have a question that must be answered. Will you pay the cost of discipleship now that you're saved? We're going to move on now to speaking of discipleship and speaking of those who were willing to accept the cost, pay the cost follow Christ, it seems that by the end of Christ's ministry, uh, once His ascension into heaven, we find that there are 120 disciples of Christ, which implies pretty strongly to me in the book of Acts that these 120 or many of them had been with Christ most of His ministry, if not entirety of His ministry, many of them being throughout most of His ministry. So why we're only having 70 commissioned here, I don't know. I would be shocked if only 70 were following Christ at this point. It is a possibility we have to consider. I think what another possibility is, Christ wasn't ready to allow all 70 to take this next step. He was basically training all of them. We think of Christ training really the 11, right? He wasn't really training the 12 because he knew the end result with Judas, and Judas, his heart was not in it from the beginning. We're told he was in it for the money, right? So, anything Christ was doing for Judas's benefit wasn't really helping him. But he was focusing at least on the 11. But you've got to remember, it wasn't just the 11. Christ was training above the 11 and Judas. He was training others, all of those that were with him. And this is one of those training opportunities, hands-on internship, you might say. And could it be that not all 100 of them or plus were ready for that hands-on next-step internship? I think that's very likely. Now, I can only assume that, but it's a pretty strong assumption from dealing with people myself, from my own human nature, that not everyone grows together at the same speed. Well, but they all had Christ. So if they all had Christ and all heard his teachings, wouldn't they all grow together? Look, uh, growing is not just a matter of having the right teaching and the right teacher and the right truth. Growing are choices you make as well with the truth under the teacher that you have been given, Christ, God himself. And there is no way that everyone that was following Christ was making the same choices at the same time to be at the same level of preparedness to take the next step. So I would say you probably have a lot more than 70 but of this group, Christ commissioned 70, probably because there was 70 who were ready. So, verse 1 of Luke 10. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. What does that mean? Well, it means above and beyond the apostles. I don't think that you had the 12 in this group. I think this is, this is 70 uh, above and beyond. And sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Well, now, that is is a really great verse. A couple things here. And one, you've probably heard. We're going to talk about that. And one, I wonder if you noticed. Let's talk about the one you've heard, sent two by two, right? Uh, When I was younger, door-to-door was a major thing, has been a major thing, I think, for decades. And when I was in my early 20s, I was a part of churches and in circles where it was pretty much you do door-to-door or you're not right with God. That was kind of how it was literally said. If not said outright, it was strongly implied. Like, wait, that church doesn't do door-to-door? Hmm, does God even use that church? I mean, that was kind of things you would hear them say, so you knew what they were thinking, right? So you felt very pressured into going door-to-door. And things would be said like, well, you see door-to-door in the New Testament. That's how it's done. That's how God uses outreach. And not only that, but you see them sent two-by-two. Two. So the only right way to do door-to-door is to go with someone else, never by yourself. Because if you do, you know, someone could say something, and you would who would be there to defend your side of the story? Something could happen, and who would be there to protect you? I get that. Those are practical truths, pieces of wisdom, not biblical theological instructions, Just because in this one time only that God sent them two by two does not mean that is the structure for every outreach program going forward. How do I know that? Because there are times where Christ sent people to do other things, and they weren't sent two by two exactly in this scenario. Also, they weren't sent door to door. This was not a city that Christ canvassed. The second thing we're going to talk about, by the way, if you didn't catch the, uh, the manner in which I was speaking of door-to-door, I think door-to-door is a great way to reach people. I think it is becoming less of a great way after COVID. And I think that it's becoming less of a great way as our culture shifts more into a reclusive mindset, COVID or not, it already was. And door-to-door, I feel, can definitely be counterproductive in particular parts of the country and the world. And I think there is wisdom to know when door-to-door is productive and when it is counterproductive. And do not let someone else's traditional view of how outreach ought to look because of one misunderstood passage. This is it right here, the one misunderstood passage. Don't let that control your belief system on how is the best way to reach the community you are in because ultimately we are called to reach the community with truth and love. How we do it, there is no set guideline, and Luke 10 verse 1 is definitely not a set guideline on how to do it. Now let's get to the second point. They weren't canvassing the city door to door. What were they doing? Moving ahead of where Christ, he himself, would come. He was sending them ahead to tell people, He's behind us. Christ is on the way. This was less of a door to door, and it was more of a community to community, city to city, village to village, stop to stop. And the route that Christ was taking, they were sent ahead, and Christ is basically saying, I'll catch up with you and I'll collect you guys as I come along. Give you a day head start, right? Get going, I'll meet with you in a few days, some of you a little longer as I as you go further. I would imagine there was some organization. The scripture is not so droll as to give us the organization. Christ probably said, you know, you, you 10, you go to the first few places, and you know, you 10, you go, you go further and do the next. And so they were staggered. So not all 70 are like converging on one community and then all moving together. I would imagine some passed the community knowing that others in the 70 would hit that community. That's just how I see it. So that's what he does. He sends them out, and he doesn't just send them with instructions of Of where to go, although that is the case, verse 1 where I'm gonna go, that's where you're gonna go now. Don't you love that? That Christ has sent the church to the world in which He has already been and to which He will return again. We are sent to communities announcing that Christ is on the way. That is essentially. A big part of our message, whether you say it that way or not, we're sent to communities because we know Christ has been and what he has done, but also because we know who Christ is and what he will do when he returns again, and we don't want them to suffer his wrath. He's coming back. We're sent ahead of him to where he will be. And then in verse 2, he doesn't just send them and, and say, here's where you go. He gives them encouragement and instruction. You know, I love a good war movie. I really, my my real love is a good story of war movies, pre modern warfare. You know, like medieval or ancient. I just feel like it uh, really energizes the masculinity within me when I watch these guys going at it with swords and knives and spears and shields. I just something about it, like ah, yeah, ooh, that's good. And so, what you would find in these movies, and I think what really good movies do is it's not just all action, it's characters that you come to love, right? And, of course, in these war movies, you're going to have leaders. In every war movie, there's leaders, and there's good leaders and bad leaders, because in real life, it's the same thing, good leaders and bad leaders. And I love that in in a good movie, you'll find good leaders displaying strong leadership, not just by what they do, but by what they say. And a lot of these movies will have the leader, you know, uh, marching in front, riding in front, you know, driving in front if it's modern warfare, and, you know, giving a speech, uh, quick speech before battle, right? To get the people prepared and ready for what they're about to do. This is how I picture what's going on here. Like Christ is sending, sending out his little commissioned soldiers for spiritual warfare, and he's giving them their battle speech right before they leave. So if Christ was going to give a battle speech, what would he say? Well, you're in luck. It's recorded for us. This is one of the times where you do get to read what he says, at least in part. So here's the battle speech that he's going to give his spiritual warriors before they head out to the communities announcing the glory of their Messiah. Verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Uh, You can read the rest of that verse. It's a pretty famous one. So what's the first part? And by the way, a great speech has a really strong beginning, It has an obvious, like, heading towards, you know, climax where it's it's strengthening and then a really strong ending, right? I love the strong beginning in this. He's basically telling them, you are the few and the brave (laughs) and the needed, right? Like, the world needs you. It doesn't have enough of you, and I'm going to send the few of you out to a world that needs more people like you. Like, if that doesn't energize you, what does? You're about to be sent out, and Christ is not saying, well, you know, I mean, like, Okay, I don't really need you, but I'll send you out anyways. I, I guess I'll use you because, you know, I don't want to discourage you. And, oh, sure, I'll take another volunteer. Uh, you, can, you can be assistant to the assistant to this person. Like You're like, oh, well, that's no fun, right? No, his battle speech is, you're needed. The world needs you. Strongly, desperately. And I'm going to send you to them. He actually says, pray that more will join you. There is so much need that you're not enough. I want to use more. So pray that your acts will inspire others to see what you see today, to go where you're going, to join with you so you will not be going alone, but two by two. And by the way, that whole two by two thing is is not so much of a direct, it has to be in pairs, as it is, I think, a principle of you're always going to be better when you're in a team. You're always better off when you got someone with you. So Christ is showing us that general principle. All right, so that's how he he starts his speech. Then he goes on to uh, verse 3. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Wait a second. (laughs) You are needed. Now get out there and get slaughtered. (laughs) That's not how it's supposed to go. But here's what he's telling them. He's saying, you are needed, but it's not going to be easy. He's not lying to them. He's not setting, themself, setting them up for immediate failure by, by putting in their heads lies and deceptions, manipulation, just to get them out there. And then, I know not all 70 of you will make it, but if I, can make, if I can lie to you to get you moving, maybe three of you will make it, and at least we'll see something, right? That's not what he's doing. Because that's what a lot of people would do. None of you will die today. I promise you, if we all stick together, you know, battle, cry, right? Everyone will walk off the field today. You know, any person who's ever been to war is going to say, you're a liar. What else can I not believe you're saying, right? So Christ isn't lying. As a strong leader, he's telling them it's going to be hard. I'm sending you. You are needed. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. I mean, that's kind of par for the course. We just saw the previous chapter where he was telling people, you want to follow me? It's going to be hard. Now he's saying, I'm going to send you, and it's going to be hard. Nothing's changed here. So why do we as Christians keep complaining when it's hard? He's been telling us it would be hard from the beginning. From the beginning of our call to service, we were warned. Why are we shocked when we discover what he told us would be true? You may say, well, that's not really something I'd want to hear. No, but it's something they need to hear. They need to know it's going to be hard. There are wolves out there. And you're like lambs to them, because I'm not sending you out to destroy them. I'm sending you out to tell them. <laughs> They'll want to destroy you while you just want to tell them. Now, verse uh, 4, carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. All right, this, this verse is unfortunate, not because it was written, but because it was read by many spiritual leaders out of context and not paired with Any other verse. There are a lot of missionaries, and I know we got Chris here with us, and he is not one of these missionaries, but there are a lot of missionaries in previous years, and I'm sure Chris can testify to this, where they were told you don't need retirement, you don't need any kind of plan for the future, trust God with the now, the tomorrow, and the down the road. If you are faithful in your service to God, everything will be taken care of. And they use verses like this. We'll look at what Christ did with these disciples. He sent them out two by two, and he told them it would be hard, and he told them don't take anything with you, don't take money, don't take anything that, uh, unnecessary, because everything will be provided, be provided for you along the way. A couple things to recognize. This is a short-term mission strip. At best, this is not a full-time instruction for full-time life ministry. He's sending them out on a short trip, and he says, I want, to ex- want you to experience on this short-term missus trip that I can sustain all your needs. This is not instruction for what full-time ministry ought to look like as a life calling. You say, Pastor Russ, is there somewhere in the Gospels where we find instruction for what it should look like for full-time ministry life calling? And the answer is, yes, there is. At the end of Christ's life, we're going to see this later as we move on, Christ, at the end of his life, he calls the disciples together and says, gives them more instruction. And at a different time, he says, I'm going to send you out. And he says, now I want you, if you have a sword, to take it. And if you have a coat, to wear it. And if you have money, to bring it. And one of the disciples says, I got a sword. Is this good? And then Christ said, yes. Okay, that's good. Good job. You got a sword. Well done, son. You got a I don't know why you're so happy about a sword. But he wanted to throw that thing around. Sometimes I wonder if it was Peter, because, you know, Peter did throw that thing around and not long after. So, Later, Christ does say, Bring a sword, bring money, bring clothing. Why? Because that was instruction for a lifetime calling. He was basically saying, Don't be so foolish, plan ahead, be ready, be prepared for the unexpected. Unfortunately, a lot of missionaries over the last 40 to 50 years were given Luke chapter 10 and not the end of the gospel's instruction. They were given instructions for short term missions, not long term missions. And now they are coming off the field. For the last 10, 15 years, they've been coming off the field with nothing. Absolutely nothing. Some of them less than what they had when they went. Their health is worse. They have less money. Whatever savings they had is now gone, and whatever home they had was sold, and the money was used for a variety of things. They've got nothing. Because some, I think... Someone with good intentions, but a poor understanding of Scripture advised them, and they, in their ignorance, listened. So what's the truth for you guys? Because I only got one missionary here, and Chris already knows this truth. So what's the truth for the rest of us? Just because a pastor says it doesn't mean it's true. Just because a pastor opens up Scripture to a verse and says, you can't deny this is what this verse says, doesn't mean he's not taking it out of context. Whose responsibility Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the verses you are following are truth and given in context? Well, it's the pastor's job. Sure, it is. But if you're going to follow it, it is also your job. Because otherwise, you are only displaying faith in your pastor. You're only displaying faith in me if this is the church you attend. If you're online watching and you go to another church, then. Following what the pastor says is only faith in that pastor. And got to be honest with you guys, you would be a fool to do that. I know what they tell you. I'm the mouth of God. I'm the voice of God. I know what they say. If you want to listen to God, you listen to me. I know what they say. I know Scripture better than you do. How dare you tell me that I'm taking it out of context? I get that. But you know what? They're talking about your life. We're talking about your future. You have every right to make sure that the truth you are following is not just coming from the mouth of the man who claims it's from God, but coming from God himself in the context that God is giving it. Do you see how easy it is to see? Wait a second, yeah. Russ, you're right. This is a short-term mission trip. But do you see how easy it would be if you don't have critical thinking, how a pastor could convince you to say, I don't need to worry about anything. I'll just fi- have faith, and everything will be taken care of. <laughs> uh, guys, know your, know your Scripture. Don't just know your pastor. And know it in context. So, he sends them out. He says, for this time, I want you to have faith, and I want you to grow faith. He then goes on to say in verse 5, when you enter, say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again, and the same house remain, eating and drinking su- such things as they give. For the labor is worthy of hire. Go not from house to house. Well, that's interesting. Wait, don't go door to door? Okay, don't worry. I'm not going to attack door to door with that verse because that would be out of context too. He's not saying don't go door to door. He's saying if you get to a city in a community and someone opens up their home, just park there. Don't go look for something better. Don't say, well, you know what? Uh, someone else offered me this. Let me, let me go check that and see if their food is better, their room is better. You know, they're a little nicer, a little cleaner. I'll let you know. I'll get back to you. Can I come back tomorrow and tell you if it's a yes or no? He says, look, if someone opens it up, you take it and be grateful for it. That's what's all being said here, okay? He's not bashing door to door in that verse. But what he is saying is, say, come with peace. Don't go looking for a fight. Go looking to offer peace. Well, what happens if you go into a city and no one receives you? Well, then, in, uh, uh, in this passage, we're told that verse 10, if you go there and you are, they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, every, uh, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. There is a statement of, if you reject us, then you are rejecting the truth we bring. And basically, our hands are clean, our shoes are clean of your rejection of truth. Basically, your rejection of truth is not my fault. I'll bring it to someone else. That's a great truth for those about to go into a hard ministry. Here's what I have embraced as a pastor. It is not my job to make you listen. It's not my job to change your heart. I don't have the ability. I don't have the authority to change your heart or your mind or your choices. It is my job to give you truth. I also have the responsibility to love you, to be at peace with you to the best of my ability. But ultimately, when it comes to your heart, all I do is provide the truth and make sure it's the truth God gave you, not the truth I want you to know, right? Provide truth. The rest is between you and God. That's what's going on here. Christ is basically saying to those he's about to send out, it's going to be hard. Offer peace. Not everyone will want it. And those who don't, don't take it personally. Make a statement. Hey, you reject truth. All right, I'll give it to someone else. Wipe the dust off my feet. I'm moving on. Don't sit there and cry. Don't mope about it. Don't give up whining and coming back to me and saying, oh, you know, Jesus, you know, this village over here didn't want me. He's going to say, I'm going to send you back out again. Don't whine about it. Go find another place. This is a great battle speech. Practical truths. I've told you before, if you've been to this church any amount of time, you've heard me say this. I believe very, very strongly that the greatest reason spiritual leaders give up is discouragement. Do spiritual leaders get involved in affairs? Yes. Does it destroy their ministries? Yes. Do some embezzle? Yes. Does it destroy their ministry? Yes. Um, But I really believe that the greatest reason guys, men and women both, who are in ministry one way or the other, walk away from it is discouragement. And one of the biggest forms of discouragement, it comes from financial, it comes from relationships, but ultimately it comes from I try so hard. I love these people so much. I know truth. I give them truth. They're not following truth. It must be me. How discouraging. I'm done. If you read Christ's battle speech, you would know that's the wrong way to see it. Don't be discouraged when people reject truth. Bring it to someone else who does accept truth. You still love them. You don't have to hate them. You still want peace for them. But don't dwell on the ones who say no. Seek the ones who say yes. Well, we're not done yet. He says in uh, verse 12, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And then he goes on to verse 13 uh, and on talking about the same thing, basically stating, Those of you who have rejected me, there are great consequences. And I told you, a great speech has a great beginning, a great ending, and it's going somewhere. It's not rambling, right? This speech was definitely going somewhere. And in the end, what was the conclusion of the speech? All right, well, what was the beginning? Did you catch this? At the beginning of the speech, Christ said, the world needs you, and there's not enough of you. I'm going to send you. At the end of the speech, he says, those who reject truth will have eternal suffering, and, he, and they will face eternal consequences. Now, for those who are serving for the right reason, which is the souls of men, The first part of that speech is inspiring. You know what? The world does need truth, and there's not enough. I want to go. And the end of that speech is just as inspiring. You know what? If I don't go, and if in some way I fail at giving the truth or making the truth uh, less than what it is or twisting it or changing it, then what is the consequence? Christ is giving verses of consequences. As bad as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be worse for these. Why would it be worse for them? Because they have more truth than Sodom and Gomorrah was given. They have Christ when Sodom and Gomorrah did not have Christ walk through their city. In fact, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah would have made different choices if I had walked through their city. How inspiring to know how powerful this truth is. The lives that can be changed eternally when they accept the truth. And that is what keeps me going. That is what keeps me from discouragement. Because I focus on the power of the truth, not the amount of people who reject it. I focus on the knowledge that this truth can change someone's life at any moment if they change from rejection to acceptance. And I always try to see those who are accepting it and try not to focus on those who are rejecting it. I choose who to look at, ultimately Christ. All right, so short-term mission ship, uh, trip and battle speech given to them. Let's move on. We're going to get to now uh, the lepers. This is a great one where Christ, of course, uh, healing the ten lepers. And, you know, this is not the only time he heals lepers. And this is an interesting situation where something happens in this miracle that Christ addresses uh, these, well, at least one of them in a particular way that he doesn't do really ever again. I don't see him... Talking in this way, I'm going to get to the story in a second. You'll see what I'm saying. So there's ten lepers in this in this text. So we're in Luke chapter 17. We're going to turn there now. Now remember, um, not all of the chapters are in necessarily chronological order in the way that they happen. And then if you look through, by the way, uh, the following chapters, you're going to find that Jesus is doing a lot of talking and teaching over these next chapters in Luke. But we get to Luke 17, and uh, we're going to pick up now in verse 11. And so in verse 11, it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Remember I told you last time we're together Christ was in Galilee, and uh, his brother said, let's go to the feast in Jerusalem. Jesus says, you go. Um, I don't need to go right now. It's not my time yet. So his brothers leave. And then we read last time we're together how Christ, after his brothers left, then he left from Galilee to Samaria to Jerusalem. So it's believed that Luke 17 is dealing with that time frame as he's passing through Uh, these areas, we're told that he comes upon some lepers. He entered a certain village, ten men that were lepers, verse 12, which stood afar off, lifted up their voices, and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. It came to pass as they went, they were cleansed. All right, so this is probably one of the most popular children's Sunday school stories out there, you know, aside from the ones of Christ walking on water. I mean, they were healing the ten lepers. Because why? Because at the end... As the ten are running, they get healed, and then one of them turns back to Christ and says, I am so grateful. Thank you so much. He worships Christ. And what does Christ say? Where are the other nine, right? So, I mean, teachers, we love this. We love this passage because we get to teach gratefulness to young children and say, be the one leper. Don't be the nine lepers. You know, be thankful for everything that God gives you. So, it's a well-known text. Um, Let's go ahead and look a little deeper, though, at this passage in Luke Uh, We're going to be, again, picking up verse 11. Let's go ahead and see what's going on. These ten lepers are here, and he says, go show yourselves unto the priest. All right, so do the lepers actually hear from Christ, I will hear you, heal you? Do they hear him say that? No, he doesn't say it. Do they have any direct statement of what's going to happen when they go to the priests? No, they're just told to go. They're not told what will happen when they get there. So what do all ten lepers evidence as they are going? Faith. So let's park and talk about faith. Faith is not acting on what you see, right? Because Hebrews 11 tells us about faith, and it's the unseen that is faith. Faith is acting on the unseen based on what you already know. What do these lepers already know about Christ? He can heal. He has healed. They know that for sure. Now, they have new information that he has sent them. So there's some logical assumptions they can make, right? He is a healer. He can heal. And he's sending us to the priests. Now, if you're going to the priest as a leper, there's only one reason. is to be checked by the priest to determine if you are fit to re-enter society, basically if you have overcome your illness. That's the only reason for these lepers to go to the priests. So when he sends them to the priests, they know by implication there is a chance we will be healed as we're sent or when we arrive, because what other reason would he have to send us? But it was only an implication. That third part required faith. He did not say, you are healed. He did not say, you will be healed. He said, go to the priest, which is a strong implication, but an implication nonetheless. All ten lepers displayed some pretty strong faith as they went to the priests. Now, Christ does deal with the one who returns. Let's go and see how that looks. So, as they went, they were cleansed, verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice, glorify God, fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Verse 10, 17, excuse me, where there are not ten cleansed, but where are there nine? They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Is there A strong lesson of thankfulness in this verse? Most definitely. You can't get around the gratefulness of the the tenth leper and Christ dealing with that and literally saying it, where are the other nine? You know, great job, your faith has made you whole. But there's a couple other things I want to point out. I already mentioned one, and that is the faith of all ten. But let's talk about that. You know, there are times where you can get so excited about an event that you forget to be grateful. I mean, come on, you're going to really tell me that these other nine lepers weren't grateful to God? They'd been dealing with a, de- a debilitating disease where your fingers fall off and, and your skin is rotting off of your body. You're going to tell me they're not thankful that they're healed from that? Of course they're thankful for it. But being thankful and showing thankfulness, that's not the same thing. This actually happened to me recently. Someone had gifted me something, and I was thankful. I, thought, I looked at it and said, oh, that was so nice of them. I, I failed to tell them thank you. And... Um, Sometime after, they said, hey, did you get, did you get that card? It was, it was a card. Did you get that card? And they said, oh, yes, thank you so much. And I knew immediately. I said, oh, you know, Russ, like I know this truth. I know that being thankful and showing thankfulness is not the same thing. I knew this. And yet I still fell into it, as we all can. So my encouragement today to you is not to just be thankful because that's the lesson here that's often taught. And the truth is we'll justify, well, I am thankful. And my encouragement is to show thankfulness and to recognize that being thankful isn't enough, especially when it's people, because they don't see your heart, but also God as well. Showing thankfulness to God is a really big part of doing right by God and to others. But there's something else that I want to point out in this text. Christ says here, thy faith hath made thee whole. What does that mean? Is he talking about your faith making you whole physically or spiritually? Look, I think that he's talking about it physically. I don't think he's talking about it spiritually. There's other times where he talks about, he says, well, your sins have been forgiven you, and that's referring to the spiritual. So I think he's talking physically here. Christ, though, says your faith made you whole. What does that mean about the other night? They were made whole, so what does that mean? Their faith also made them whole. So what's the truth here? God is so good and so awesome that even when you don't show thankfulness, he can still do an amazing work in your life from faith alone. That God is not so petty as to, like, a spoiled child. Oh, you're not going to show me thankfulness? I'm going to take that back from you, you know, or only the thankful get this, right? What do you say? Please, sir. Okay, here you go. You know, God's not that petty. God is commending the one for showing thankfulness and basically encouraging and saying, you know, let's see more of this, but he's also rewarding the faith of the other nine, That's the kind of God we serve, which is what kind of God? A God of mercy. That faith is rewarded on its own merit. Does that mean we don't need to be thankful? No, obviously you do, and you should. But recognize faith alone can take you pretty far. (laughs) And then showing thankfulness can reflect back to the person, specifically in this case God, a form of worship, of gratefulness, which is very important in the life of a believer. All right, let's go to one more text tonight. I don't know that we'll actually finish this text, but we're going to go ahead and get to it. John chapter 7. So Jesus now arrives in Jerusalem at the feast. And when he gets there, of course, his brothers are already there. So are many, many others, because this is a pretty big deal. This is one of those feasts where Jewish men were supposed to travel. There two main ones throughout the year. It was kind of expected that you would travel down to Jerusalem and be there. This is a pretty big deal. A lot were traveling. So they're here at the feast. And uh, when Jesus originally arrives, we're actually told he doesn't make a big deal out of it. We're told that in verse 10, but when his brethren were gone up, then he went also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. That doesn't mean he's trying to be sneaky. It just means he didn't march in like he does, you know, at another time where he has marched, he's on a donkey, and everyone's lining the streets singing Hosanna. That is not how he's entering now. He's entering discreetly at this point. And when he gets there, we're told the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Specifically the religious leaders, those who wanted to destroy him. And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay. But he deceives the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Oh, well, I'm a little concerned. I'm confused because of verse 11, the Jews are seeking him. And then in verse 12, the, those who are saying things about him were afraid to say it because of the Jews. I think you've got obviously split factions. You've got some Jews who want to destroy Christ and some Jews who don't want to destroy Christ. And the ones who did want to destroy it we're concerned about speaking openly or preaching it openly. Obviously, they're saying things because it says what they're saying. They're talking about it, but probably only talking about it to people who agree with them. You know, it's one thing to say something to someone that you know agrees with you. Something altogether different to say it to someone you know who disagrees with you. (laughs) So in this case, these guys aren't willing to say it to those who disagree. They're afraid of the disagreement and what that might mean for them. Well, eventually Jesus is going to be recognized. and uh, in verse 14, in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught and began to speak. The people marveled and said, "Wait a second. How can he do how can he say so much and say it so well?" Verse 15. He doesn't even know his letters." Having never learned, basically he didn't have any formal education. How can he be such a great teacher, having not been trained how to read and to write, and obviously he can speak, but, you know, wow, he seems like he's an educated man. Verse 16, Jesus says, my doctrine is not mine. Wow. You know what? We could stop there. I could go the rest of the ten minutes, and I just might, and not go any further than that first verse right there of his first point. My doctrine is not mine but his that sent me. Have you considered the humility of that statement? People are saying, it's amazing. You speak like an angel. You talk like a learned man. You say things we've never heard before. If anyone deserves to take the praise and glory in it, it's Christ. No one else deserves that kind of praise and can take it, and not sin by pride, right? Remember the story in the Old Testament, a man named Nebuchadnezzar? Something similar was said about this king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He goes out on the porch, on the, on the uh, balcony, you might say, and speaks to uh, the people, and, and boy, they're just glorifying him, and, and he's looking out and says, wow, everything out here is so amazing, and, and, uh, this is, and, and I'm such a great king, you know, because these people just love me so much. He looks out and, says, and thinks about how awesome he is, and uh, what does God do? Strikes him dumb, becomes dumb like an animal, and for seven years, if I'm not mistaken, seven years, wanders in the fields like an animal, like a beast, and eats grass, yes, And after seven years, his reason comes back to him. And when his reason comes back, he says, you know what? Never was about me. God's better. And God says, fine, you can be a king again. Find another king this time in the New Testament. Again, this guy, he's speaking and saying things. And people are like, wow, he speaks like a god. He, He speaks so well. His voice is amazing. And this king takes the glory and says, I am amazing. And the Bible says God struck him with a disease. He was eaten of worms. I don't even want to know what that disease is where worms eat you from the inside out. That's nasty. The guy dies. All right, so this is not the first time people have looked at someone and said, you are amazing, right? It's happened many times before, many times after. It's really tempting to take that praise and say, I am kind of amazing, aren't I? If anyone can take it and do well by it, it's Christ. They say it to Christ, and Christ says, well, actually, the words that I'm giving you come from my Father God doesn't even take the praise when it's due him. So what's the point? How dare his servants act any different? How dare any of us, when we just are speaking truth, that's not even our truth. I'm not making this stuff. I'm just re-preaching what God has given. How dare any of us, when we give truth to someone and it changes their life, and they think their life is changed because of you, how dare you accept that praise? No. You do not change their life. You don't have the authority or power. I already said to that, right? There's, there's a real thing. People like that. You know what they do? They take all the glory and never none of the consequence. <laughs> if you literally did have the power and authority to change people's lives, then what about all the dozens and hundreds of people who are destroyed who were under you one time? Well, that wasn't my fault. Well, then how is it your fault for the ones that did good? Well, you know, no, don't even go down that road. You know what you're talking about anymore. No. People's lives are changed when they make choices to follow the truth of God, not to follow me or to follow you. And when the truth sounds so good, it's not because you're so great at speaking it. The truth sounds so good because it is so good. In any way that it's packaged, the truth is good. Christ is setting an example here for future teachers and future leaders. And remember, if you're preaching the right doctrine, and it is changing lives, and people start saying, you are amazing, remember, it's not your doctrine. It was given to you by God. And if it's that awesome, point them to the awesome God who gave the awesome truth, not the person who's at least smart enough to just re-speak the awesome truth. And yet I see a whole lot more of the other side, from a whole lot more men and women who should know much better. People who are taking the glory, and they're forgetting the stories of the kings of the Old and New Testament who think they are better, and the results, the consequences in their life. Could it be that there are ministries today who are spiraling towards self-destruction, not because of a lack of truth in that church, but because of a lack of humility in the hearts of the leaders of that church. Truth has been spoken, is being spoken. People's lives are being changed. But that pastor is failing to redirect the glory back to God. They are taking it for themselves. And so they are suffering consequences, and with them, the people who they are leading. It is your responsibility to choose the leaders you will follow. I don't choose who will follow me. I choose who I will follow as you choose who you will follow. If I choose who will follow me, I am no better than a dictator forcing you into my will. I have had many people come and go over the years. And as long as they are going in a right spirit, not one of hostility towards me, and even then I try to be gracious, but as long as they're not trying to destroy us as they go, they are free to go with my love, with my joy, with my blessing, if it's even needed. They're free because they were free to come. They're free to go. It's not a prison. I'm not a guard at the local jailhouse forcing you into a room you cannot escape. If you choose to follow me as I follow Christ, that is your choice, not mine. But understand this. If you are choosing to follow me as I follow Christ, you have the responsibility to make sure that I am following Christ. Because too many Christians think, that's not my job. I've literally heard people say things like this. It's not my job to make sure if the leader's doing what's right. It's my job to do right by the leader. What, who, where are you reading that? Can you show me a chapter and verse on that one? Where as long as you're doing right, the leader can do whatever they want. Yeah, King David in the Old Testament. Actually, yeah, that's actually kind of true. King David in the Old Testament did have that kind of philosophy against Saul. Look where that got him. Never once did God give that philosophy to David. That was David's own, and I don't think it worked out too well for him. Oh, sure. In the end, Saul died eventually. Look what David had to go through before that time. Well, that's what God wanted. How do you know? Because that's not what the Bible says God wanted for David. What the Bible says God wanted was for David to be king. And then David's philosophy was, it's not my job to tell the leader what to do. It's my job to follow the leader no matter what. Hmm. I actually don't see that ever given by God as an instruction to man. I see people in the Bible who believe that, and it didn't work out too well for them. David fled to the wilderness. David lost good men and women, people he cared about, including his own wife, Michael, was lost to him. Oh, he regained her, but he never really regained his wife. They just ended up living together because of David's philosophy. If it's not my job to change the leader, the leader, that leader destroyed his marriage. King Saul destroyed his marriage. Why? Because Michael was King Saul's daughter. King Saul also destroyed a lot of other things in David's life. So if you're okay with bad leaders destroying your life, then have at it and take that philosophy. Embrace that philosophy of I will have the right attitude and do what's right even with bad leaders. Well, then expect those bad leaders to abuse you. And if you think that's your calling, more power to you. Just don't blame it on God because I don't see God giving that instruction. I do see God telling the church to hold the leaders accountable. And when they teach false truth, to throw them out. And when they lord over the people, to eliminate their authority. And when they live in immorality, to eliminate their position. I see God telling the church how to hold leaders accountable, not to enable them to do whatever they want. I don't see that. So if that's what you believe you should be doing, it was probably told to you by a leader who wanted to do whatever they wanted, who wanted full authority over you and wanted to be God to you. It's not helpful to you, it's not helpful to them. And if you opened your eyes, you would see plenty of stories and illustrations of how it works out for people with that philosophy. Don't be one of them. You don't need to be a martyr in that case. God's not calling you to it. Choose the right leaders. Be the right kind of leader. Reflect all glory back to God. And you will find success, joy, and peace in a much healthier environment of ministry if you change your philosophy to one of biblical truth rather than a poor leader's idea of what church dictatorship looks like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those that are here tonight. I pray that we would all be cautious in the men and women that we follow, making sure that those we follow are following you, and be very sensitive to those who are following us, making sure that as they follow us, we also are following you. I pray that all praise and glory, specifically, especially related to truth and the changes that come from truth, would be directed to the God of truth, Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, not taken for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.